One of the, the questions that we keep coming back to, and it's hard to believe, at least to me, that we're already finishing Philippians next week. Feels like we just started it. Next week, we'll finish Philippians, and then we'll do two weeks on Advent, and then it'll be time for Christmas in the new year. One of the perpetual questions we just had before us throughout this entire series is how does the human being become like this? Paul is in jail. He has been tortured over and over throughout his life. He has lived a life publicly of shame and rejection. What he thought his life would look like when he was younger has not turned out that way. Everything has fallen apart, humanly speaking. If I had had Sam read farther just for the sake of time, I didn't. The very next story in Acts 16 is Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing hymns of joy in jail that just how does a human being become like this somebody who's sitting in prison and yet is flourishing is joyful is not despairing is not anxious who is utterly focused on the interests of others and the needs of the philippians and many other churches who's focused on the glory of god how does a person become like this and then the simple answer although you have to flesh it out more is the gospel um, I don't know if you've noticed, but every title of every sermon in this series has had the gospel in it, um, the, the participating in the gospel, the master story of the gospel, everything in Philippians is about the gospel, and today the sermon title is the practices of the gospel, and, and this is going to be the main focus. The gospel is absolutely, first and foremost, about what God has done for us in Jesus. It is first and foremost a message of something that's happened outside of us and before us and apart from us. It's about God's grace, not about our goodness, but nonetheless, the gospel not just invites, but it demands a response. The gospel includes in its very nature an invitation to participate in it, to do things differently than we did before. And the, the way I want us to think about these exhortations in Philippians 4, 1 9, is these are practices that constitute part of our essential response to the gospel. And so if you ask the question, how does somebody become like this, like the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 1 through 9 is a pretty good answer to that. He is somebody who was chosen in response to God's grace day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, to rejoice always, no matter what the circumstances are, to respond to anxiety, not to not have anxiety, everybody has anxiety and worry and fear, but to respond to it by turning to God in prayer, and not just any kind of prayer, but prayer with thanksgiving, to live in peace and harmony with other people. Um, the main reason I had Christine read Romans 12 is not just that it's focused on our response to the gospel, like Philippians 4, and it's the staccato, one after another, let love be genuine, this, 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 and this, but like Philippians 4, and probably in some ways even more so, Romans 12 is especially focused, and this is going to be a big theme for, for the rest of the morning, is especially focused on, on an issue that's easy to miss, which is there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of injustice, there's a lot of pain in the world, and how you respond to when other people are not being the way they are supposed to be is a central aspect of Christian discipleship. And I think it's one that increasingly in our culture, whether you lean left or whether you lean right, whether you're more liberal, whether you're more conservative, our culture increasingly encourages us from all sides that when other people are awful, that justifies you dropping your principles and being awful in response to it. And central to this passage, central to Romans 12, go read and reread and reread and pray through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. The early church, because of Paul and especially because of Jesus, were so focused on not what is the right thing to do, but when somebody else has done what is wrong, what do you do next? 
is so central to Christian discipleship. And so that's the reason that in verse five, especially when Paul says the ESV, I don't know quite know why they go this direction. Let your reasonableness, this word just does not mean reasonable. It's a word that refers to gentleness and forbearance and patience. It's a word that in ancient Greek always shows up in context of somebody who is um, not, who doesn't allow others to antagonize them, to drop their character and to use an athletic illustration and image is to play down to the level of the competition, but allows their own inner principles, their own commitment to justice and truth to shine out of it and to not allow others as they are being sinful and evil and wrong and selfish and brutal to allow that to change our tone, to change our mood. And and I would just say this, a great practical question for us as Christians is, are you a fundamentally different people, a fundamentally different person around people you don't like and who annoy you than you are around other people? And if you are, that is a great growth edge for us. It is very, very easy to become like that. It's the most natural thing in a fallen world to become worse around people who are worse. But here in Romans 12 and Philippians 4, so central is, and so for instance, let me say this and then we'll move on. All of these practices that Paul commends to us in Philippians 4, one way to think about them is that they are all 100% independent of our circumstances. If you say, yeah, yeah, it'd be ideal to rejoice always, but look at the season I'm in. This isn't a season for rejoicing. It would be nice to not be anxious, but you know, this person over here who has their job lined up and they've already met their spouse and then they have good health, they cannot be anxious. But for me, I kind of have to be anxious to look at the season I'm in. These are all exhortations that ought to be true of us regardless of the circumstances. Now, I don't mean that circumstances don't affect us. Joy in a season of suffering will be different than joy in a season where a lot of things are going well. But nonetheless, circumstances don't take away the demand, the, the, the need for us to be joyful, for us to be grateful, for us to be kind to our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, that, that so often what happens in a fallen world is our circumstances create um, and, and shape the nature of our response. And here is Paul, who is utterly, by the grace of God, able to transcend his circumstances and not to allow them to shape how he responds. And so let's just make a couple observations, then we'll just Basically, it's going to be very practical, very simple. We're just going to walk through each of the practices for a couple of minutes each. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, so he's drawing out inferences from everything you said about the story of Jesus and the gospel and imitating Paul and his story, imitating Timothy and Epaphroditus and others. He's drawing out implications in this part of the letter, which Paul often does at the end of the letter. And the central exhortation to these people that he loves and longs for, who are his joy and his crown and his beloved, is that they would stand firm. That's the central thing. That's not one of many practices. That's the goal of the letter to stand firm. Paul, if you turn back to chapter one, Paul has already said this. Chapter one, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you in person, or whether I stay in jail, or even get killed in jail and I'm absent, I may hear of you, and what does he want to hear about them? That they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. This is all one verb in Greek, striving side by side. The same verb he uses for Euodia and Suntuke in chapter 4. That they have labored, strived side by side with me 
for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, just a little farther on, chapter two, verse two, having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being of the same mindset. Going back to chapter four, all of these exhortations have the same mindset, to stand firm, to strive side by side for the gospel, they're all there. And one other kind of reminder of a passage in Philippians, right before our passage at the end of chapter three, Paul gives this great um, disposition, this great portrayal of his disposition, his posture. And he says, I don't let the past drag me down in nostalgia or regret. The one thing I do, verse 13, chapter three, is I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way, have this mindset. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Then he has this little line, only let us hold true to what we have attained, which is another way of saying stand firm. Now, it, it is ideal and it should be normal in the Christian life that in general we're growing. But Paul also knows that there's always a danger that we recede, that we fall away. Um, I, I don't want to get off track here at all. And this is not my point to make comments on uncultured at all. But the last six or seven years, Donald J. Trump, COVID-19, it's been a hard time in our culture. And one of the ways I, I've tried to articulate what has been disorienting, there's lots of things disorienting, all of it, is that I have so many friends and so many former students I've worked with over the years, that whether they lean left or whether they lean right, who are undeniably diminished versions of themselves today compared to six years ago, that the last six years have caused them to become worse versions of themselves, in part because the brokenness outside of them, they have constantly used as an excuse to say, I don't need to hold my principles. I get to kind of enter the fray and do this. And what Paul is saying here when he says stand firm, what Paul is saying here when he says at the very least, only make sure that you hold back is make sure you're not going backwards. And in a fallen world, yes, maybe it feels a bit more extreme in the last six years, politics and COVID-19. If you let the culture around you set the tone, you will become a diminished version of yourself over time. If you allow the playing strategy of the opponents out there, of people out there, and how they treat, treat you to set the tone, you will find that you become more hardened of heart. You will find that you become more justifying of things in your own behavior that you would have earlier criticized others for. And here's Paul saying, stand firm. Don't let anything circumstantially around you shake you from the gospel. One of our core values, we have six core values as the church. You can read them on the website. Um, about a year ago, we, we preached through these values and we did two sermons on each of them. One of them is a word that, that I love that worries me a bit because it's used a lot in our culture, which is authenticity. Now, a lot of people in our culture use the word authenticity in a way that I think is unhelpful, but what we mean when we say that authenticity is one of our core values is that we want to, so to speak, live the gospel from the inside out and be authentic to the story of Jesus, rather than say, it'd be nice to pray for our, those who persecute us and bless those who hate us and to love our enemies, but it's stuck right now. It's too important. We just, we can't do that right now. Later, maybe we'll get to a place in our culture where we can do it. But right now, there's just too much going on. Nobody's got time for that. And authenticity means we don't let anything going on outside of us divert us 
um, redirect us from living out the purity of the gospel. And I think that's what Paul means when he says, stand firm, let the gospel be your base of operations. Don't play down to your opponent. Don't let people shake you away from it. This is what the gospel looks like. The first thing he does is in verses two through three, is he mentions a couple of women, Euodia and Sutuke. We know for sure these are female names in the ancient Greek world. They're not male names, and they are almost certainly Gentile pagan names, not Jewish names. Euodia is, you can hear, eulogy, um, uh, words like that where good is at the beginning. A eulogy is a good word. Euodia and Hadas' way, so this is good journey, which is a way of saying success. And so Euodia's parents named her success. And then Suntuke is the Greek version of the Latin word fortune or fortuna, lucky. And so we have success and lucky here. We have two parents who are really aspiring that these kids would turn out well, which is a classic sign of paganism, not Judaism. If you're Jewish, you don't name your kids words like that. But pagans, they in every culture, Korean, Brazilian, um, European, we love naming our kids things that we hope will happen to them in the future. So here's success and here's lucky. And by the way, one of the reasons I had Sam read Acts 16 is not just that you see women from the beginning are significant in Philippi, but that you see Lydia there. There is a decent chance that Lydia is not actually her name, even though we often, um, Sam and Hannah have a sister named Lydia. Lydia is a very common name. Now, Lydia was a group of people, the Lydians, and so it's probable that that's not her formal name, but more a designation of where she comes from. And given that she's a central leader from the beginning in Philippi, a decent amount of commentators throughout history have thought that she's probably one of these two women, Euodia or Sintuke. Notice that Paul uses the language that in the past, these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel, and they are my fellow workers. From the beginning, Lydia not only becomes a Christian, but she becomes kind of the patron of Paul, and the church begins meeting in her house, is these are women who, from the beginning, have been central to the ministry of the gospel in Philippi, and there's always danger to speculate here. I'm not going to speculate at all. Is It seems somewhat safe to say there's some kind of a conflict between these two women right now, whether it is an out-and-out relational conflict, whether it's a more secondary thing, like they're doing well personally, but they just disagree on how Christians ought to respond to this moment or what's going on in culture. Is there some antagonism? There's some discomfort between these two women, and Paul wants them to have the same mindset again. And and if you want to keep your finger there, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a phrase that Paul uses a lot. And so I just want to try to articulate a little more concretely what it means and what it doesn't mean. At the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says in verse 10, a lot of readers think this is kind of the thesis statement of the next 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions in Greek schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You can see unity, thinking the same thing, agreeing, not being divided. Let me say one thing negative, one thing positive about that before we look at the practices. Negatively, this does not mean that the church is a place of uniformity and on every single thing in creation to a thousand degrees, every Christian is supposed to think exactly the same thing. 
Like, I would love for all of you to realize that the Yankees are a better team than the Red Sox. You don't have to think that to be a Christian. When Paul says that, he's not saying every opinion I have about anything, I want all Christians everywhere to always think that way, that he knows. Romans 14, influence. there are lots of things Christians disagree with how we engage the world politically, what we do in response to the culture here, um, whether this is or this is more important here. Paul's not saying that we always think exactly the same thing. What he's saying is that our mindset, our basic disposition should always be the same. And, and this is the word that he has used over and over throughout Philippians to describe the mindset of Christ. And so here is the single thing that Christians ought to be on the same page about, that we are all towards each other, postured the same way Jesus is postured towards us, that there is no diversity among us on that. That it's not like some of us are unselfish and doing the Jesus thing, but others of us, we're, we're moral. We're not breaking the rules, but we are profoundly self-centered, that all Christians ought to have the mindset of Jesus. A.W. Tozer, great pastor from the 20th century, he was central in the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, which has been big in the New York City area. This is great image. When he says, if you want to get a bunch of self-centered, broken human beings to be united with each other, what you don't do is have them face each other and, and try to have them line up with each other. Because all you're going to, all you have is basically a hundred pianos that are all out of tune in the same room. And the way you get out of tune pianos in tune is not to tune them by another out of tune piano. It's that you grab a tuning fork and you tune every single piano to this one reality in the room. And the story of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus, putting the interests of the kingdom of God and his neighbor in front of his own, even at the point of great suffering, Paul perceives however he does, because we know nothing about the circumstances, that the disagreement or the conflict between Euodia and Suntuke is not one of those conflicts of just, we honestly just see things differently here, but it's a conflict that is arising out of each of you is moving away from this posture of the mindset of Christ, and he's calling them back to that. That's not to say that we need to agree on everything, but even in our disagreements, there ought to be, um, and here's the, the positive way to put what I've been saying. When somebody does something that you really don't like, when somebody has really um, it just been an awful human being, um, not only does that not give you the right as a Christian to drop your principles, to stop doing the Jesus thing and say, until this person is dealt with, all bets are off. I'm going to be as nasty as they are because it just the, the ends, the means are justified by the ends. But this is to say this, here's the way I would articulate it. Not to play down their evil, not to play down the injustice out there, but even in those situations, even those people, you ought to be for them and not against them. What they need should trump what you want in that situation, even your enemies, even people that you cannot stand politically, even people who are awful human beings, that you ought to be for them and not against them. And Paul perceives in you, audience, in two case, something has begun to arise in this relationship. We're just, if we're being honest, neither of them is putting the well-being of the other in front of their own enemy. The conflict has become one of those conflicts that is now the epitome of selfishness. By the way, it's, again, a source of speculation. It's always been, you know, um, something in church history that people like to guess about. Is it this singular in the Greek, verse 3? Yes, I ask you also, true companion. And so almost certainly that's a person. That's not a symbol. That's not a metaphor for the whole church. 
I am not going to get into it at all right now, but I, I've never looked at this before, but in the last couple of weeks of preparing for this, there's a really good argument to be made, which if you want to talk about more, come up to me afterwards when you talk about more, that that's Luke. There's a really good argument to be made that Paul is referring to Luke there, that Luke has been in Philippi for a while, he's been Paul's traveler, and he's referring to Luke there. But what he is saying about Euodia, Sunutuke, whether one of them is Lydia or not, or Lydia is one of them or not, about Clement, we have no idea who that is, whether this is Luke, whether this is somebody we've never heard about, is here's what I want to end with. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the Book of Life, there is, there has been, there will be forever conflict among us in our relationships to each other. The absence of conflict per se is not a sign of help. In fact, when I do premarital counseling, if a couple has been dating for six months or nine months and they tell me what the trait is, we've never had a fight, my worry level goes up because something is wrong there. The absence of conflict per se is not a sign of help. But nonetheless, conflict can destroy relationships. They can cause each person or one person to drop their principles, to not stand firm in the gospel, and to say, well, I'm justified in being a different person with this person now because of this. And here's what Paul says at the end. He reminds everybody involved that we are fellow workers, that we have the same mission, we're on the same team, and our names are in the book of life. Here's, here's the way I'm going to rephrase that. The next time you just can't stand somebody else in this church, or a church that you're in, is remember this, we are stuck with each other. Our names are in the book of life, and you better figure out a way to get along with people, because they're not going away, and you're not going, we are stuck with each other, guys. This is Thanksgiving with uncles with really weird political views and aunts with really inappropriate things to say. There is no changing the fact that we are family. And so you can just not show up for Thanksgiving for a while. You can just be in fact, but at a certain point, we got to figure out how to do this together because all of our names are in the book of life. And that's an important thing to remember and therefore stand firm in the gospel. And so the first practice is just this basic, you know, harmony, this unity of everybody in the church should be on the same page, not on everything, not on many things, not on most things, but on everybody has the posture of Jesus towards one another, the people we like, the people we don't like, the people that are easy, the people that are hard, the people that we vibe with culturally, politically, ideologically, the people who drive us nuts politically, ideologically, in their vibes, in their relational tone, that everybody is on the same page here. Now, Paul then just in verses four through nine, just begins to list a bunch of exhortations. Um, let me just point out before I give maybe two minutes on each of these joy and prayer and non-anxiety and all of this is that a passage like this reminds us of something. And I say this a lot, not just in this series on Philippians. I think the greatest sickness in Western Christianity is cheap grace. You hear me say that a lot. One of the ways to articulate when cheap grace is present is cheap grace is present whenever what we do is played down and its significance. What matters is what Jesus has done for us. If you start talking about what Christians need to do, you're a legalist, you're not trusting in God. Now, what Jesus has done for us is infinitely more important than what we do in response, but that is not to say that what we do doesn't matter. What we do matters. When Paul says in verse one, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, my beloved. That's, a, that's the kind of language Paul uses whenever he's reminding them that when Jesus comes back and we all stand before God, that you're my joy, you're my crown. He's reminding them that we're going to give an account to God one day. 
The title of this sermon is The Practices of the Gospel, Becoming Not Just Hearers of the Word, but Doers of the Word. Three people in the New Testament say, almost in exactly the same way, Jesus in Matthew 7, Paul in Romans 2, and James in James 2, it is not enough to hear what God says in command, you must do it. If you go and you look at Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, James 2, faith and works, even the demons believe that God is one. Faith isn't just believing things about what God has done or who he is. And Paul and Romans do. They all say what you do matters, not just what you believe and think matters, in the context of reminding us that one day we will stand before God and give an account. And what Jesus will ask us on the last day will not be, where's your doctrine statement? Did you dot all your I's and cross all your T's right? Then I ask, what did you aspire to be? What were your ideological convictions? is he will say, did you do what I asked you to do? Now, that's not to say that we will need to be perfect. It's not to say that, that good works don't flow out of faith. They do. But it is to say that what we do matters. And I would say this. Let's leave aside even the religious dimension of living our lives with a clear conscience before God, a sense of accountability, knowing that, that true faith always expresses itself in good works, not perfectly, but, but sincerely. And to say this, we have very few college students in this church. I think we have almost no high schoolers. And so even though we're a young church, you are all old enough to be tired of yourselves in a way that you were not earlier in your life. You're all tired with your flaws and your bad habits and the way that they actually pay off in your life. And that is such a great thing for me as a pastor because it's great material to work with. Um, when somebody's 21 and they're making a ton of bad decisions, but they're not paying any consequences yet, it's really hard to get through that person. But a lot of you are 25 or 28 or 35, and all of you have had innumerable moments and not even apart from Stephen, Romeo and Augie and, and me and a few others, not nearly as much as you will have in the future, are moments of I'm so tired of myself. I'm so tired of doing this, not being able to do this, of the misery it brings, of the brokenness it brings, is here is something. Um, this is from Annie Dillard, the great writer, and she is a Christian, but she's not saying this in a Christian context here. It's as you get older, and, and you look at a passage like Philippians 4, is especially when we're younger, but it, it can it, it can persist, which is why I want to say this, is you can kind of excuse when you're younger your bad habits and even the consequences they bring by saying, someday I'm going to get it together. Someday I'm going to pray more. Someday I'm going to give more financially. Someday I'm going to get to know the scripture better. Someday I'm going to serve and use my time for others. But right now, it's just, I just kind of need to be doing this self-centered thing right now. And at a certain point, you wake up, and, and it might be when you're 24, it might be when you're 34. Hopefully it's not when you're 44 or 54, but whenever it is, and you just realize the change doesn't happen naturally. Nobody, D.A. Carson is a great line, he says, nobody accidentally drifts into holiness in Christ. Change and growth doesn't happen naturally. You can show up here week after week, year after year, hear a decent sermon, listen and sing great songs, be in fellowship, but that's all it is. That's not enough, that there are practices that the gospel gives us. And so Annie Dillard says this, a pretty famous line, and, and it's so relevant for so many areas of life, especially as we come to the end of the year, we get ready for the beginning of a new year. And when it comes to probably as we look at these practices, it's probably safe to say none of us live these out anywhere close to as consistently, as regularly, as devoutly as we should. Annie Dillard says this, a lot of you have heard this before, I'm sure, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. 
what we do with this hour and that one just is what we are doing. And so I would say when you read a passage like this, you say someday, yeah, ideally, someday is what you are doing with your time is what you are doing with your life. What you are doing with your hours is what will be manifested on the last day when we each stand before God. The time is always right to start moving in these directions. And so let's look at some of these practices. And by the way, I also often say this, I'll say it here. One of the great mistakes that many Christians make when they move to a city or they leave a church and are looking for a new church, whatever it is, or they become a Christian, is when Christians look for churches, they often, and it's not bad in and of itself, is they often look for like the beliefs on the church website, which you should, it does matter what churches believe, or they listen to kind of the, the, the music style and they're like, oh, I like that music style, I don't like that, or they listen to the sermon and like, oh, this is a really boring pastor, no, this guy actually provokes me to, to be, you know, thinking about my faith more, all of that's fine, all of that's good, but the most important thing about a church is the things that come out of this. Whether it's a church that rejoices, that turns to God in anxiety, whether it's a church of peace, a culture of peace, Ray Orland, one of my favorite American pastors who's probably near retirement now, says this, that the most important thing to a church is not gospel beliefs, although that's absolutely foundational, it's gospel culture. And when he says this, what is gospel culture? Gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving, the corporate embodiment in a community of the biblical message, the gospel, in the relationships, the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, gentleness, there's our word from Philippians 4, the humility, the cheerfulness, indeed the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Why does this matter? Why must our churches not merely preach gospel doctrine, but also embody gospel culture simultaneously by God's grace, because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than just doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. And what does Paul get on Euodia and Suntike for? Hey, you haven't dotted the I's on justification by faith apart from works. Come on, ladies, like, read this book. It's a lack of relational beauty between the two of them. That's what Paul criticizes there. What's he focused on? Not here's all the theology you need to believe. You've done that earlier. But are you a person who rejoices always? And I'm going to say it again. Do you rejoice always? Are you a person that whenever anxiety rises up, your first and perpetual instinct is to turn to God, not to trivial distractions, to suppress it even to other people, not the bitterness and anger in this part, but to turn to God, and to turn to God with expectation and gratitude that calms you into a person of peace. Is this the culture that we have as individuals, as a church? And so let's look at joy first. Philippians is probably most famous for joy. We've talked about it a lot. This word joy and rejoice shows up 16 times in the letter. We're going to, in just a few minutes, after we do the Lord's table and pray and do the announcements, we're going to sing a final song, and it's joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And actually, if you turn there in your bulletin real quick, it's the song at the end of the bulletin. We need to notice something. I didn't notice this until a couple of years ago. One of my favorite books to the Bible, Lord willing, we'll get there someday, is the book of Job. And there is a line at the end of this hymn, which alludes to Job, and you could sing it a hundred times and not notice it. It's the, final, it's the final stanza, and it says this, it invites us. Mortals, join the mighty chorus 
which the morning stars began. I love that line. At the end of the book of Job, God appears out of the whirlwind. And if anybody has an excuse in the history of the human race to not rejoice always, it is Job. But he has allowed his sorrow and his grief and his sense of injustice to cause him to not just not be grateful, but to be ungrateful to God, to complain to God, to, to be accusatory towards God, to become despairing. And God takes him on a cosmic tour of the universe. He doesn't give him religious answers. He says, hey, notice that. Look at these animals. Look at the ice storm over there. Look at the sun and the moon. And he shows them the world, which is going to connect to something that we're going to look at a little later. But the first question he asked Job is, where were you when I created the world and I laid its foundations? And, and to many people, someday we'll get here, is if you were going to film the book of Job, which I think would be impossible, when the voice comes out of the whirlwind, what's the tone of voice? Is it, is it angry? Is it gentle and reassuring? Is it confrontational? Is it annoyed? And I suspect that many of us read, where were you when I created the world? The way like an annoyed dad says something in anger to his kids when he's not in a good moment. Like, I'm your dad, you listen. And, and, and God is basically just saying, Joe, I'm so tired of you. Where were you when I created the world? It's kind of like almost self-pitying from God. But every time God asks a question, he's not trying to willpower Job into submission. He's trying to get him to notice something about the world. He hasn't noticed before. And the first question in Job 38 is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when I did this, and when I did this, and when I did this? And the final part of the statement is the key to it, and it's what this song is echoing. And when creation was finished at the very beginning, where were you when the morning stars sang for joy and erupted in celebration? If you are watching the World Cup right now, and especially if it's your team where your family comes from, or you have friends, you're watching, is if your nation scores, there is an eruption of celebration that not many other things rival. And God is saying to Job, when the world was finished and I created it, the originalist response to creation makes the greatest celebration that should the World Cup look like kids play. There was an explosion of joy from the angels, from the sons of God. And here in the song, what are we being invited to do? Mortals, join the mighty chorus, which the morning stars began. Join that. And so I, I want to be really careful with this because one, depression and sadness is really difficult. Mental health stuff is really complicated, really difficult. I am, as many of you know, a, a guy who naturally feels the darkness of life. I'm much more angsty than I am more joyful. I do not find joy a natural disposition. It's very hard for me. But nonetheless, there is in our culture a lot of tendencies to justify why we never rejoice. I'm, I'm depressed. Look at all the injustice out there. It'd be irresponsible to rejoice right now with all the injustice out there. And we talk ourselves into never being joyful because, because, because. And what God is saying to Job, what Paul is saying to Philippians is a failure to rejoice regularly is a failure to be awake to what is going on in the world. It is to make a calculated error about reality. If there is an overall lack of joy in our lives, the response is not, well, that's the way the world is. It's also not to say, I can't because this mental health, or because this, my story, or because this, all the injustice in the world. Here is Paul saying, and the danger is the thing that this is the willpower thing. It's not, but it is to say that God has done something and is doing something 
and will doing something and will do something that makes joy possible and within our capacity. And therefore, the lack of joy in a Christian's life, not only joy, not necessarily mainly joy in some seasons, but if there is regularly a lack of joy in our lives, there is, I think Paul would say, a failure to appropriate the gospel rightly. There is the ability to stand back by God's grace and to choose to rejoice whatever the circumstances are. That's not joy instead of sorrow, but it is joy in the midst of sorrow. And here is Paul over and over and over again. And, and again, Annie Dillon, how we spend our hours is how we spend our lives. How we spend our days just is what we're doing with our lives. Is how did Paul become like this? And maybe his early 60s sitting in jail is he is the kind of guy who has set aside time every day every week to rejoice. And I would say, when was the last time you took agency and responsibility to choose to rejoice? Rather than in our culture, our culture kind of teaches us to expect, it just kind of hits you sometimes. And you should be thankful for the times it just lands on you. But here's Paul saying, I set aside time and space every day to remember what God has done, to remember who he is, to remember the larger story, and to rejoice in response to that. Is that something that we're doing with our lives? For Paul, he seems to think that that's really central to Christians and a Christian community being healthy in response to the gospel. And so uh, G.K. Chesterton has this great line when he says, yes, sorrow is a part of the fallen world. Yes, there's danger to suppress it, to turn away from it. That's another topic for another time. But the reality is, and I, I would say this to each of you to, to aspire to this, is G.K. Chesterton reminds us, we are never more fully ourselves than when joy is the major note and grief and sorrow are the minor note. If you are lost in sadness and sorrow, I understand, I really do, but that is diminishing you. If you are lost in anger and bitterness, I understand. I understand how we get there. I have been there a million times, but you are a diminished version of who God has created to be. Joy is our natural habitat as human beings. It is the natural response to being alive in the world that God has made. And so Paul calls us, open your eyes. We'll see this. This is why he ends with whatever, whatever, whatever is good, beautiful. This is pay attention to it because that's central to joy. That's central to joy. The second thing I'm going to speed up here is Paul says, let your gentleness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. Again, this is a word that in the New Testament and ancient Greek primarily refers to not allowing the antagonism and the wrongness of others to kind of tilt you off your posture, to play down to the level of the competition. It's always, if you ever play sports, you watch sports, you follow, it's always the mark of a weak-willed team that they play better against good opponents and they play worse against lesser opponents. They play down to their competition. A lot of Christians play down to their competition. Is if, if the circumstances around us, I'm around a bunch of annoying, awful people, I'm also gonna be more awful in that context. Paul says, no, let your gentleness be known to everyone. A couple of years ago, a guy named Dan White did a survey. I know I quoted this sometime last year. And it was one of these surveys that was trying to get at what, again, kind of these two main categories in our culture, liberals, conservatives, the left, the right, kind of how they're similar and how they're different. And of course, people, depending on how they line up on these political ideological issues are different a lot. But there was something that was strikingly similar about both 
thousands and thousands of people who identified as strong leftists, thousands and thousands of people identified as strong conservatives, which is about 75% of each category on the left and the right agreed that a strategy of loving your enemies was irresponsible and to become complicit in injustice. To be good to those that you perceive as being the problem is itself immoral and irresponsible. And I would just say this, if you don't notice that about both the right and the left, which is when we're talking to the awful people, we get to be awful ourselves. When we're talking to our friends, we're nice and we're winsome and we're pleasant. I would say, please wake up to that dimension in our culture. And please know that that is faithlessness to the gospel if we do that. That's central to Christian discipleship is forbearance and mercy and gentleness. That, that do people that you can't stand experience you as being for them and not against them? Now, that's not for their sin. And, and we can be against injustice, but is there any sense that Christians are experienced as profoundly different in the face of and in response to evil? Alan Jacobs says this, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, and both the right and the left have increasingly rejected that account, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of injustice but has no means anymore of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians seem to believe, sexual licentiousness. Rather, it is vindictiveness. It is vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack cocaine for moralists. There is no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors and evil people. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishing those who are wrong will therefore get worse before it gets better. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Don't let that set the agenda for you. Don't let that become a functional excuse for not having to do the Jesus people with those people like you do with other people. We do the Jesus thing with everybody. Larry Hurtado, last one on this, and then I'll end. Larry Hurtado, a couple of years ago, he just died in the last few years. Great early church historian and New Testament scholar. Wrote a book um, called The Destroyer of the Gods, which is his summary of what the early church did to the Roman Empire, destroyed the gods. And the subtitle is Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. And the single question of the book is, given that there was no social benefit to becoming a Christian in the first three centuries, and there was a lot of social loss and social suffering that came from joining the church, why did anybody become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why would anybody sign up for this? And throughout the book, he gives five main reasons. The early church, before Constantine, before the Roman Empire, kind of made it the official religion, just nonetheless spread like wildfire. What set it apart? What was distinctive about the church, the Christian community? And here's five things. I'm going to mention four, and I'm going to get Tim Keller's take on it. The, the first two are this, that the early church was distinctively multiracial, multi-ethnic, and the center of its community was not a shared cultural inheritance. 
that it wasn't, well, we're all Christians, but we also all like eating this food, or we all speak this language, or we all have this color of our skin, that it was distinctively, in a way that nobody else liked it, a group that was centered around something that had nothing to do with the shared cultural inheritance or socioeconomic status. And so it brought people into a community with, that, with something new. And so when you think about all the forms of nationalism and white supremacy and tribalism and kinism, all this stuff is out there and growing today of just that, that, you know, we need to be this, we need to be with people of our own. The second one was hospitality to the poor and the suffering and a commitment that we're not just for those in our community, but we are for those outside of our community who are in need was as rare in the ancient world as it is today. Um, the third one is this, the sanctity of life, whether it's the unborn that the Roman Empire was dominated, not by abortion because it wasn't safe back then, but by exposure of children and infanticide. Children were seen as property, not fully human, slaves, the elderly. The ancient Greco-Roman world was as much a culture of death as ours is today. And from womb to tomb, the early church was pro-life. And the fourth one was a commitment sexually to male-female covenant relationship forever and not the hedonism of the larger Greco-Roman world in the misery and the brokenness that led to. Tim Keller points out that those first two, multiracial, multiethnic, hospitality to the poor and those in need, a preferential option for the poor are classic values of liberalism in the left. And increasingly, not just not values, but openly opposed by many on the right. The third and the fourth, pro-life and sex, one man, one woman, are central values of the right and openly opposed by the left. And so you cannot map the early church onto our political divides at all. Here's the most interesting one, though. The fifth, Tim Keller points out, both the left and the right openly disavow today, which was a commitment to loving their enemies to blessing those who curse them and to doing good to those who wrong them. That there was nothing like that on the map in the ancient world. And all of a sudden the early church is like that. And the result was not annihilation, not, not nobody becoming a The result was people found flourishing and joy and hope in this. And so when Paul says, let your gentleness be made known to everyone, go back and read that Romans 12 passage Christine read, go read the Sermon on the Mount. It's a way of saying that the way Jesus responds to evil and to those who do evil must be our response to him. It must be our, the cross is not just the way God saves us. It is our strategy for responding to evil. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. And then finally, this famous, famous line in verse six, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, not just make your request be made known to God, but do it with thanksgiving. It's not just gratitude, thanksgiving, but connected to prayer, connected to prayer in response to anxiety. I would just encourage you to notice all of us struggle with anxiety to some degree, but some individuals, some families, some churches, some communities overall are more high anxiety than others. And I'm going to say that whether it's you or your family you grew up in or, or a community you're in or whatever you notice about other people, I want you to notice something about what happens when we are regularly high anxiety, which is that people who are otherwise good and moral begin to lose their awareness of how profoundly self-centered they are being. If I wasn't so anxious about this, yeah, I could be focused on you, and yeah, I could do this, but anxiety presents itself to us as the morally responsible thing to do. 
even the morally inevitable thing to do. And Paul says, not only make sure that you're not trying to manipulate and control your own circumstances, you're not suppressing anxiety, you're not distracting yourself from it, you're not feeding it, make sure you turn to God. But he also says, when you turn to God with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving too, even prayer can become a means to an end of using God for your anxiety project. And so even when you're anxious, make sure you don't let that be everything. Make sure you remember God's goodness and the gratitude for it. Remember that Jesus is already Lord. Remember he already rules over the world. We do not need to let anxiety become central to our existence, to our culture. By the way, the central way I would encourage you to do that practically, you don't have to, but I think you would be wise to, is you should be praying the Psalms every day. The Psalms and praying them is what turning to God in anxiety with thanksgiving to make your requests and supplications known looks like. Learn to pray the Psalms. It will overflow in the long run in joy and peace and gentleness. It really will. And then finally, this verse eight, verse nine. Finally, brothers and sisters, and, and here's the way I'm going to um, recategorize this last practice in verses eight and nine. I'm going to call this that what Paul is inviting us to here is a form of cosmic mindfulness. Whatever is beautiful. Not just religious, but in the secular world. Not just in the story of Jesus, but in the story of cultures. Not just in my culture, but in other cultures. Not just now, but in the ancient world. Not just in the ancient world, but in the modern world. Wherever you find in creation, in reality, something that is true, something that is honorable, something that is just and righteous, something that is pure, something that is lovely, something that is commendable. If you find anything out there in the universe that is excellent, that is worthy of praise, be mindful of it. Give it your attention. R.D. Lang, which is a name some of you might know, says this, the range of what we do, what we think and do, is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we are perpetually failing to notice there is little that we can do to change until we notice how our failing to notice is shaping our thoughts and deeds. This is a call to be more awake, to be more aware, and to be intentional about where you give your attention. And so when you look at this passage in the days and weeks to come, I would encourage you, especially on this one, to ask the question, where are your thoughts going hour after hour? What gets your attention? Where is your focus day in, week out, year in, decade out? Where do we spend our time? Simone Weil, this incredible young French Catholic woman in a World War II era, says this, there is something in our soul that loathes true attention much more violently than our flesh loathes fatigue. That something in us that loathes truly paying attention is closer to evil than anything our flesh is. That is why every time we truly give our attention to something worthy outside of us, we destroy some evil that is still inside of us. If someone pays attention with this intention, 15 minutes of genuine attention is worth a lot of good works. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And so I would ask you to step back and ask, where is your attention? What gets your focus? What is your mind 
focused on. And one of the great things about mindfulness, even in a secular practice, is that it reminds us so much of our experience of the world could be other than what it is if we just were paying attention in a different way. If we just put our minds on things that we're ignoring or forgetting or failing to notice. Marilyn Robinson in her Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, um, it's a series of letters from an old pastor to his son that he suspects he'll never get to know when he's older. He's probably going to die of a heart condition. So it's just all these letters. And he tells a story, and Marilyn Robinson tells a story from him. And I'll end with this and, and call us this kind of attention. It's there at the end of Job. There was a young couple strolling down the street half a block ahead of me. It's such a cool little paragraph. The sun had come up brilliantly after a heavy rain, and the trees were glistening and very wet. On some impulse, plain exuberance, I suppose, the fellow jumped up and caught a hold of a branch, and a storm of luminous water came pouring down on the two of them, the guy and the girl. And they laughed, and they took off running, the girl sweeping water off her hair and her dress as if she were a little bit disgusted, but she wasn't. It was a beautiful thing to see, like something out of a myth. I don't know why I think of that now, except perhaps it is easy to believe in such moments that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables and washing your clothes. I wish I had paid more attention to water. My list of regrets as an old man may seem unusual, but who can know that they are really? This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. And that is a great summary of what God says to Job. This is an interesting planet, Job. There is a lot more to it than your tragedy and your loss. Rejoice evermore. And so I would just encourage us, let's have this list in front of us in Philippians 4. And this final song that we'll get to in just a couple of minutes is going to invite us into leaning intentionally into making our joy our always primary perpetual response to who God is and what the world is like. So let me pray, then we'll go into the Lord's table. Father, thank you for these practices that Paul reminds us of at the end of Philippians. And I pray that whichever ones especially seem the most far away, the most impossible, the most contrary to our dispositions or our present character or experience of the world, whether it's joy or peace or turning to you and trust and prayer and gratitude when we're anxious, whether it's leaning into even those we deeply dislike and are offended by and bothered by with gentleness and with love and with blessing rather than cursing, whether it is just being more aware of the wonders of the creation you have made and of the story of redemption and of the grace we have received, I pray that you would, for each of us, through your spirit and by your grace, broaden our horizons. I pray that you would help us to grow in our ability and in our capacity to rejoice always and evermore, to be people of peace and gentleness, to not play down to our competition when it's different than that. I pray that you would help us to be non-anxious, grateful people of prayer. I pray that we'd be people who not only bring our concerns to you, but know that they are dealt with, know that we are cared for, and that that 
knowledge of your fatherly care would free us from worry and anxiety and free us for being available to others rather than having to constantly navel gaze at our own sadness or anxiety or self-preoccupation. Help us to grow in these practices of the gospel. And thank you for men and women like Paul and Euodia and Suntuke and Lydia and Timothy and Epaphroditus and so many who've come before us that we can not only think about these things in the abstract, but we can hear Paul say, and what you have seen and heard and received from me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, help us to practice the gospel, to not just think about it, to not just enjoy what you've done for us, but to practice it, to participate in it, and we just confess we need your spirit. We need your grace for that. Um, thank you as we go on the Lord's table. This is such a central practice of the gospel of eating and drinking and giving thanks to you with joy and with gratitude. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Because the